Good morning. I want to welcome you to Providence Church. My name is Jacob. I'm one of the pastors here. And man, it really is just a thrill to, uh, to see you here and to have the kids come up. Um, I know it was a little chaotic. It was pretty awesome, huh? Just to see what's happening over there uh, all the time. It's just one service, right? Just one service. And so I want to thank you, Providence Church, for making an investment in young people's lives. And there are so many different ways that you serve, that you give financially. Um, I look out, our treasurer, Greg Butler, is here, and he can tell you, I mean, the abundant financial resources that come into this church week after week amaze us. We seek to be great stewards of that and making an investment in all ages to know more about the love of Jesus and to make a real difference in our community where we want to see everyone fed, everyone free from addiction, everyone safe in this community, and every child by the time they reach the age of 18 be ready for the future that God gives them. And so I just want to say a huge thank you to you for investing in the vision that God has given us here at Providence. And it's really simple. It's we want to see people who feel disconnected from God and the church find hope, healing, and wholeness in Jesus Christ. And there's a lot of that happening in these young people. And I'm just super pumped. And I want to say thank you, thank you, thank you. Let's pray. God, open up our hearts now to hear from you what you have to say to us. Let us hear the words of Jesus when he says, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. And so in every place of weakness in this room, God, we pray for the flood of the strength of your spirit, that you would fill us up, just these humans, you know, broken, you know, messy humans that are in this room, God, that you would come through your spirit and do that work in weakness to make us strong, strong for our lives, strong for the future, strong for our community, strong for our nation. God, we believe that you can use the church of Jesus Christ, to transform the world. But first, God, transform us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As a pastor, oftentimes I will meet with people, and they will, uh, without sort of knowing that it was coming, they'll start crying. It's a very normal thing. It's just I'll be talking to someone, and I can see it, and like, Oh, the dam's about to break, you know, and they'll just cry. And there's always an apology, and I'm always like, everybody cries when they're around me. I don't know why. <laughs> you know, it's fine. But it, it happens. Uh, it has nothing to do with me. It's just there's such an intentionality when someone would be like, I'm going to go meet with a pastor, talk about my mess, talk about what's going on in my life, talk about my hopes, talk about my fears. And there's this emotion that comes behind it. It's actually not even that uncommon that it happens in worship, you know. A song is sung, or there's a moment, or, I mean, just seeing the kids, right? There's this thing like, I'm feeling something. I'm not sure I can let it out, you know. That's one way people cry in front of me. Another way that I've experienced, though, maybe not as often, but still happens from time to time, is that I will meet with someone, and I will realize as their tears begin to flow that they are not new to crying. A dam has not just broken, but in fact, they've been crying for weeks and weeks and weeks. They're in a place in their lives where there is this almost unquenchable well of tears. And the reason they're coming to me is because they feel stuck. I don't know if you've ever felt stuck. 
But they're just in a moment where they're like, I don't know how to get through this, get over this, deal with this. And so uh, that's another way that tears come. And a year or so ago, a young lady came uh, to meet with me, a woman of great faith in our church. I knew her. I knew what was going on in her life. And she had been crying for weeks and weeks and weeks. I could see her eyes were just like they were exhausted, you know, from all these tears. And what I knew that had happened in her life was about two months previous, her sister had passed away after a really long illness. And she had walked through that so faithfully. And now here she was just crying and crying. And what she said to me, uh, the question that she asked me is she said, Jacob, do you think that Jesus is grieving with me? Actually, what she said is, she said, do you think, do you think Jesus is crying with me? Now, understand, she was not um, a person saying, you know, I don't believe in God or I don't know where Jesus is. She was just being real practical. She's like, is Jesus going to cry for like eight weeks with me? Like, how long is he going to hang in this? She was feeling stuck. And before I could uh, venture a response to her, she said, I want to show you a picture of a sculpture. And I'm like, well, that's new. I've never had anybody do that. And she opened up her phone and she showed me this picture of a sculpture. It's in a park in Geneva, Switzerland, uh, made by an artist named Albert Georgi. And he put this, he made this, created this sculpture after the death of his wife to illustrate the grief that he was feeling and the grief that he would feel even if he was sitting in a public city park. The name of the sculpture is called Melancholy. And it's this dude just sitting in a park but his whole insides are open. He's got this big hole on him on the inside. And I'll never forget Charlotte. That was the young lady's name saying to me. She said, this is how I feel. I feel like, she said, there's this big chasm on the inside of me. And so I began to realize that what, what Charlotte was saying was not like, how long am I going to grieve? She knew that you lose your sister, <clears throat> you're going to grieve for a while, right? She was saying, how long am I going to feel like this? How long the hole? How long the chasm? And where are you, Jesus, in the midst of this? She was expressing to me, even though I knew that she was in a very appropriate place of grief, that there was no tear that was out of place, there was no length of time that was too long. But what she was feeling, if you've ever been in a place like that, you're, you're thinking, am I going to get through this? Or is this me for the rest of my life? I don't know if you've ever felt stuck you know, just had something going, and, you, and, and it's like, you, I've, you felt this way before, but not for this long. It's just like, how long am I going to be here? I remember this time I got s- stuck uh, just in a, in a bad spot, you know, emotionally. I had had this conflict in a relationship in my life, one that I thought would, would be with me probably the rest of my life. And now everything was jacked up. Everything was messed up. Everything was rearranged, and, and it was never going to be resolved. You know, every relationship in this life is not, doesn't get a full reconciliation, and that's where I was. And so I had that going on, but I also had a lot of other stuff going on meaning like my life. I wasn't able to just kind of sit around and think about that I'm feeling bad all the time, you know. It's like I, I wasn't getting all these chances to ponder my feelings. I had three little, little girls that we were raising. We just started a church. I believe I was married at the time. No, I know I was married at the time. Uh, there was a lot, you know, I, I had a lot of other stuff to deal with than just kind of my yuck, right? And I remember Allison Vine, she's our director of care here. She's been with me since the very beginning. We started this church. She knew what I was dealing with, and she said, hey, Jacob, I really think you should talk to somebody about that. And I was like, I really think uh, you should uh, do your job, which is caring for the congregation, you know? <laughs> I don't think your job is, goes this way, so... 
run along. And, and, but I remembered her, she knew something wasn't quite right. And so, uh, coincidentally, in a city park on my day off, I had my kids out. There were these little girls, man. We were having fun. There was nothing bad going on. It was just a really good day. And I don't remember at all what happened. I don't remember at all what the kid did or what, you know, what, what happened. But what I remember is in public scolding my child. And we don't really, I'm not like a yeller, so I wouldn't say I was yelling, but I raised my voice. I remember I had, I, I grabbed her by both of her arms so she could like feel the full extent of what I wanted to say to her. And I remember there was like other people around, probably some of you guys are like, I remember that, Jake. It was <laughs> no good, bro. But I felt, I got them in the van when I sat down in the front seat, I felt this big already. And Rachel said, uh, I didn't even look at her, I don't know if she was looking at me, but Rachel says, she said, you know what that was, right? She didn't say, do you know what that was? She said, you know what that was, right? And I knew, and I said to her, I was like, yeah, it's the thing with my friend that I haven't dealt with, and now I just dealt with it with a 10-year-old. And so I called Allison. I was like, I need to talk to somebody. And I went and First time I'd ever gone to a counselor, I just kind of laid out the whole mess. It was messy. I didn't even like it. I didn't want to think about how I was feeling. And I put all that stuff out there. And he said, oh, you're stuck. And I thought, I'm paying 110 bucks an hour for that. I was like, what do we do next? But here, I'm hoping that there's some relating point for you in your life. I'm not just trying to share my junk, you know that there comes a place when you're stuck like that or like Charlotte felt like she was or like the sculpture on the bench, when you know that for you to get to the other side, for you to fill that back up, for you to deal with the emptiness, there is going to have to be something that happens that is beyond the power that you have. There comes a place in everybody's life where you're like, man, for me just to make it, For me just to get to the next thing, I'm going to need something to happen to me that I can't do. And in the scriptures, that is called a miracle. When something happens that is beyond what we can do. And when it happens, we're like, oh, that's a miracle. It's, it's oftentimes called a sign because it's like a signpost. This thing happens, and it's not just the thing that happens, but the sign is pointing to God. It's also uh, in the scripture sometimes called a wonder. A wonder happens and we marvel at it. Well, the book of John, which we've been studying, is written around six such miracles. Six things that could not happen outside of the power of God. Six. Uh, it's actually, let me back up. It's written around seven miracles. We've looked at six. I want to remind you what those are. If you haven't been with us, no big deal. I just kind of want you to hear. These are the six, the first six miracles in the book of John. The first is changing water into wine at a party. The second was the healing of the royal official's son while he was still on the way home. He wasn't even back to his son yet, and he was healed. The third is healing of the paralytic at the pool, a guy who couldn't walk. The next was the feeding of the 5,000. It became very famous. Uh, the, the, The fifth one was walking on water. Jesus walked out on a lake. And then one we looked at just a couple of weeks ago is the healing of a man born blind. 
And we've looked at these miracles. All, it's been all year that we've been looking at them. And we have marveled, right? We're like, man, Jesus can do anything. This is incredible. This is great. But whether you realize it or not, there's this sense in all of us as we've heard this, that there is a miracle that we need that is more than more drinks at a party. And it's even more than getting some fish and bread multiplied at a meal. And it's, it's, it's more than walking on water, even though that's really amazing. It's a miracle. And it's, it, it's even more than healing a boy or a guy who can't walk or a guy that's blind. It's even more than that. The seventh miracle, which we're going to dip our toe into today, is um, it's a doozy. <laughs> it's... And it is the miracle that begins to show us the picture of, of what God can do in moments just like this one. And it's such a famous miracle. Um, it, it, it's, it's such a good one that you only need one word to know it. Once you've heard it, there's only one word you need to know, one name that you have to hear to know it. And the word is this, Lazarus. If you've ever heard of the miracle of Lazarus, you don't need any other story to catch you up. You just have to hear the name Lazarus. It's like uh, Beyonce or, uh, you know, it's like LeBron, you know, like you don't need anything. You got it, right? You get it. And so you may have heard the miracle of Lazarus. He is a guy who died and Jesus brings back to life. The miracles are a progression of showing us the power of Jesus walking on earth. Lazarus, it's all you need to know. But this week, we're not even going to get to the place in the scripture where we look at Jesus at the tomb. We're not going to hear Jesus call him out, which is amazing. Next week, okay? We're not going to look at him and say, take your grave clothes off, Lazarus. I know you were dead, but you're not dead anymore. We're not going to talk about in detail how Lazarus was four days dead, which means he was a really, really dead dude. And so it was a really big miracle that Jesus called him out. What we're going to look at first is a very intimate picture of Jesus encountering the people who love Lazarus, who are his friends, and how Jesus gets them out of that empty, stuck feeling that they are feeling in their loss and their grief and their confusion about how God works. John chapter 11 starts like this. It says, now a man named Lazarus was sick. That's how a lot of miracles start, with somebody who's not well, with somebody who's not okay, they're not doing okay. So it goes on to say, he was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Next verse says, this Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. What's that all about? We're being reminded that Jesus was really good friends with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. They were his friends. He loved them. Jesus had his disciples, right? The people he hung out with all the time he worked with. They were great. But he, Mary and Martha and Lazarus in the Bible, they're just like Jesus' people. When he had downtime, the folks that he was hanging out with, he loved them. Okay? And it says, so the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the, the one you love is sick. That's all they had to say. Jesus, Lazarus is sick. And when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. So Jesus says, Lazarus is not going to die. Actually, wait a second. That's not what he says. He says the sickness will not end in death. That won't be the end of the story. 
what's going to happen is for God's glory so that the Son may be glorified through it. All the miracles in the book of John are not just about the temporal, physical, amazing thing that happens in that moment. They have a bigger picture. They're pointing to Jesus, the guy who's walking in flesh on the earth as the Son of God. All the miracles are trying to say that. And he says what happens with Lazarus is going to do that too. And then it says Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. What a note. Just a reminder. He loves these people. Yet, verse 6, yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. You heard it right. He loves Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Lazarus is really sick. He gets the news that he's needed, and Jesus doesn't show up for two days. And what happens in those two days is Lazarus dies. They were a really important two days, and Jesus wasn't there. It says that on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Again, the four days was really important in their religious culture. They believed sort of that the spirit of a person hung around their bodies for three days. Four days, forget about it. It says Bethany was less, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. This is important. It's an important uh, note in the narrative to know that a bunch of people had come around. Why? Because what happens with Lazarus and Mary and Martha is going to be a moment that's not just for them as a family, but all these people are going to spread the news. Okay? And when Martha heard, next verse, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. So the story begins. Jesus is on the path. You know, maybe he can see their house. Martha comes running out, but Mary stays home. Both are important figures, Martha and Mary. Martha meets Jesus. Mary stays home. And she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And I sort of picture this, um, the sculpture in that moment. Martha's lost her brother. And she comes out to Jesus and says, basically, where were you? You're our friend. You have the power, but not for us. The next verse says, but she says, Martha's so cool. She says, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus says to her, verse 23, your brother will rise again. Don't mishear this, because the way Martha hears it is how we would hear it if we've lost a loved one and we do this, and if we said to, said to you, and we mean it, we would say, your, your loved one is in heaven now. Your loved one is with the Lord. We, we comfort each other with the truth that we believe about eternity, right? And so Jesus is saying, your brother will rise again. So that makes Martha's response make sense. This is how Martha responds. She says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. That's what we say, right? If, if you're a believer and you believe in, in the life that Jesus gives us eternally, someone dies, someone who likes, loves you says, man, I'm so sorry, but you know that, that he's with the Lord. You say, I know, I know, I believe in the resurrection that will come. And so Martha and Jesus are now about to engage strangely in this kind of theological conversation out on the path while they're grieving the loss of Lazarus. And this is Jesus' response. She says, the resurrection, I believe in it. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection, and I am the life. And he who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? This is a reminder that Jesus is not just their buddy. He's not just their friend that has hung out with them. He is that 
But he's telling her, he said, I'm actually the resurrection. What Jesus is saying in this claim, and Martha would have known it without, without mistake, is Jesus was saying, I'm the son of God. I'm the Christ. And if you put your belief in me, you will never have to die. And he asked Martha on the path, do you believe this? Do you believe me? And listen to Martha. She says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who was to come into the world. We see that this is not just a story about grieving friends. This is a proclamation of the miracle that's going to change everything, which is Jesus and his resurrection. After she said this, next verse, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. So Jesus is out on the path saying, hey, I'm the Messiah. And she thinks, I better go get Mary. And so she goes back to Mary, who's presumably grieving in the house with a big crowd of people. And she, and she says, the teacher is here and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. So now Mary's running out to meet Jesus. Next verse, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. I'm just guessing that Mary and Martha had been saying to each other, if Jesus had not had been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. The first thing Martha says is, man, if you'd been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. Mary finally runs out and she says, Jesus, if you'd been here, you kind of get the feel of it, right? It's like a respectful way of saying, where are you? If you'd been here. And when Jesus, next verse, verse 33 says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. What happens here is Jesus, when he sees his friends grieving and feels his own grief, he begins to feel what they're all feeling. Jesus enters into, you know, this. And that may sound sacrilegious, but it's not. Jesus began to feel the grief that they felt and that you have felt. He felt it for real for himself. He felt the emptiness. He felt the whole, it says he was deeply moved. Verse 34 says, Jesus gets real practical. He says, okay, where have you laid him? He's got something on his mind now, right? Where have you laid him? And they say, come and see, Lord. Jesus is being invited down another path to like say a family tomb. He's like, where is he? He obviously doesn't know where that is. Where's the tomb? Where have you laid him? Jesus is being invited to go. They begin to walk. There's a crowd around them. And then verse 35 says, Jesus wept. Jesus stops. Jesus doesn't make it immediately there. He just stops and he cries. I really think the writer, John, would have said something different if Jesus had had a tear well up in the corner of his eye. I do not think that's what happened. It says that he was deeply moved. The, the, the Greek word there is like he was agitated. He, he felt the stuckness of the moment. He felt the starkness of death. He felt the, the, the weight and the depth of the grief. And Jesus cried. Jesus cried. I don't know if you, the reason I'm not going to go to Lazarus coming out of the tomb yet is like we've got to pause here that the Son of God, the Christ, began to cry over one person who had passed away. That's how deeply he cared. When I uh, met with Charlotte, you know, the young lady I was telling you about who lost her sister, I knew that she was in an appropriate place of grief. 
that she hadn't cried too much, that she hadn't gone too far, that she in fact really wasn't probably stuck, you know? It's just really hard, these things we go through and they feel long, they, it feels like it goes longer than it should. I could see her reaching out, I could see her breaking, but you know, breaking in the, in the right kinds of ways. And so I wrote about Charlotte in my, my book that just came out called Breaking Open. Chapter five, it starts with the story of Charlotte and even more details because I was really captivated by this person who I had seen so faithfully follow Jesus in this place now of kind of struggling and figuring it out. And I did something at the end of the chapter. That's what I'm telling you about. At the end of the chapter, I decided to write, um, I'm not even sure this is legal, but I did it. I wrote um, what I hoped would happen in Charlotte's life. It hadn't happened, but I was like, I just want to write like the end of the chapter. I want, I want to write what I hope, what I see coming. So I just want to read you uh, a, a bit of that. Not much. I just want you to hear what I was hoping for. So this hasn't happened, but I wrote, a month or so after Charlotte came to see me crying in my office, she came back to church on a Sunday morning. So at this particular time, she was not coming to church, you know, it's hard to come. And I wrote, that's a really hard thing to do after a great loss like a divorce or a job loss or in Charlotte's case, the death of a family member, because you'd come to church before that happened and likely asked for a different outcome, maybe even pleaded with God for that. So to step back in this place can feel foolish sometimes, or at the very least, just really sad. So to come back, we find that God meets us here, that he's created a space for us here. Well, Charlotte came back. I made up, I imagined. Charlotte came back, and as I saw her worshiping with Ellie, that's her daughter, standing on the chair next to her, singing praise to Jesus, I could see clearly, well, almost clearly through a tear or two, that God's ways are higher than our ways, and there will always be stuff that I don't understand. All the emotions we feel in brokenness don't fall flat to the floor, but instead travel like arrows to the heart of God. He can handle the anger and the sadness and the confusion. He welcomes it. And as we break open to God, our hearts open to the heart of God. He meets us in the sorrow and in the pain. Well, shortly after I wrote that, I took about a three-month uh, vacation from church. I had something happen in my life uh, with a health event. And um, on the other side of it, I was trying to get this book done. And so I hadn't been to church in a while. And so I called Charlotte, and I was like, hey, I wrote this thing in the book that hasn't happened yet but I wanted to tell you about it because I think it's like, you know, the ending that God is writing to your story. And she says, oh, Jacob, I've been back at church every week. You just haven't been there. <laughs> I was like, has Ellie been there with you? She's like, yeah, Ellie stands there and worships just like we used to. She said, I'm not over it yet. I'm still really struggling, but I'm back and I'm seeking the heart of God. And the reason uh, I share that with you is because what I tried to do in the book was try to um, do what I think Jesus is doing all the time. I'm not a prophet. I couldn't predict the future. But I've just seen Jesus so many times when we're going through hard things. He's already writing the good end to the chapter. We just can't see it yet. Didn't you hear it when they came to Jesus and they told him that Lazarus was really sick? He said, oh, this won't end in death. And they thought, oh, that means he's not going to die. No, it means Jesus was already writing an end of the story they didn't understand. And when Martha came and met him on the road with that big question, like, where were you? What, what's going on, Jesus? If you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. Jesus said, oh, he's going to rise again, <laughs> you know? But they didn't understand that Jesus was writing an end to the story that was really beautiful. And here's the thing, guys. Whatever you're in right now, 
wherever you're stuck, our God is writing for you a miracle story that's not based on your power, but that's based on his power. He's going to do something. He's going to do something that includes the miracle for Lazarus' friends and the miracle for Lazarus, which is none of us are going to taste death for very long. And you may feel stuck right now, but the moment is really just like a snap in the span of eternity of what God is going to work in your life. And so I I noticed a few things. I just want to point these out quickly of what we can do if you're sort of stuck. And the next week, guys, we're going to see Jesus call out to Lazarus in the grave and the grave clothes come off. It's going to be amazing. But I want to point out these three things. The first is this. Before the miracle happens, say, I believe Jesus is who he says he is. The faith of Martha, the story of Martha is that even though the thing she wanted Jesus to do and he didn't do it, she still met him face to face and said, I still believe in you. I'm asking you questions. I'm telling you what you could have done. I'm telling you what I think you should have done, but I still believe in you. That's what faith is, okay? And it's the way to start getting unstuck. The second thing is, is we know Jesus is writing an end of the story where the dead come alive. That's crazy. It's preposterous. That's what it means to be a Christian. We base our hope not on the seventh miracle of Lazarus, but on the one that comes after it when Jesus is risen from the grave. And so we believe all kinds of preposterous, hard to believe things in every moment because death cannot hold the believer in Jesus down. That he's writing an ultimate story for us and for all of creation. It's pretty big. It's pretty cosmic. But that's the realm we're living in as believers. And we are the ones who carry forward this story. We are the holders of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's really important. And then the third thing just for us today to know is Jesus cries with me. We're stopping there so that you know if you feel that gap, that hole, that chasm, Jesus does not have a time limit. He's not with you for five minutes or five months. However long you're there, however long you're crying, Jesus is journeying with you and crying with you. And this is very, very important just for practical life. It's very important for your legacy, for what you're going to leave behind, to understand that Jesus grieves with you. And it's not worth it to stay stuck There will be moments when you will be a bonehead and and, and treat your children in a way that you wish you had never done it, but you don't have to stay stuck there. And I implore you to try to keep moving, to keep looking to Jesus, because that 10-year-old will become an 18-year-old going to college in a snap. And if you stay stuck there, you will carry with you, why did I, why didn't I, all these whys? When instead, what you can do while you're still in the minivan, before you turn the key, is say, everybody in the van, listen up. Dad's really sorry. And admit your pain. And admit your uh, insufficiency, even in the job of being a dad. I promise you it's better than just pushing through and acting like you have it all together. Dad's going to get some help. Dad shouldn't have done that. I'm really sorry. I'm going to tell you I'm not going to do it again. And I'm going to take the steps. You, You see what I'm saying? To get unstuck, we take advantage of the broken moment that we're in, the frailty that we see in ourselves, and we say, I'm taking this to the Lord, the one who can resurrect all things. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these miracles. We need every one of them. And today we ponder and pause and think about Jesus on the road with his friends, saying, I am the resurrection, I am the life. And whoever believes in me, even though he dies, will live, live forever. So we come to communion, God, bread and juice, as a way of saying we need Jesus, we want him, we want the miracle. 
Help us, help us today, God, to get unstuck, to move a bit, to push a little bit against this place that maybe some of us have been uh, lingering too long. And do it not through our power, but through the miracle of Jesus. That's why we receive communion in his name. Amen.